You can turn, if you would, your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. I know we've had like a little break there um, since we were trekking through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, you may recall the last incident that occurred, this was all after the, the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus took James and John and Peter up there and they saw Elijah and Moses and, and just Jesus with the kind of glory of God uh, uh, shining forth and through him came down and Jesus cast the demon out of the young boy that his disciples couldn't cast out and so and then uh went to Capernaum and there they were encountered by some tax collectors, you know, kinda of like the IRS kind of tracks us down, you know, they know where you live. But anyway, they were questioning Peter about whether or not they Jesus paid taxes for the temple tax, which is not a tax to Rome, but tax to support the temple, so kind of a people's tax. And of course, Jesus uh, made it clear that he abided by the laws. He was not a lawbreaker. And so he said, uh, we're sure. And he kind of taught the disciples a lesson there in, in chapter 17, in verses 24 through 27. And then he um, just told Peter, he said, hey, you know, I, I just don't have intention. I'm glad you go down there to the lake and, uh, and throw a hook in and push fish and catch, uh, that'll, that'll cover the, your taxes and mine too. And so Peter, you know, I'm assuming, he doesn't say, but he, he probably did, because he was a fisherman. But now he stood up, uh, I'm sure he found the money right there in the fish's mouth. I, after reading that and studying that, every time I go fishing now, I'm just still looking at that, you know, it might be a credit card, you know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, all of this, I believe that the spotlight has been on Simon Peter a little bit. And I say that to set the stage for chapter 18, because chapter 18 begins with his disciples acting like bosses. I don't mean eating, but, but disputing, arguing. <laughs> I know that happens occasionally, because we're very opinionated people, and, you know, uh, somebody said you get two bastards together and you'll get at least three opinions. So, uh, you know, I don't doubt that this is probably you know, what's behind this. But let me just, first of all, focus you on the theme of the message. And, and really, it focuses on a spirit of humility. Okay? Uh, the, the theme is Christians, that's us, the people of God. We, we mirror or reflect the humble attitude of Christ. If you're a Christian, that will happen. Uh, it's not something that you strive towards, it's just going to happen. Because the Spirit of God is going to do that in you. So, you may want to ask yourself this question as, and meditate upon it as you go through the message this morning. Does the Lord see a genuine child, childlike dependency and trust in my faith relationship with Him? As Christ looks at you, the way you live your life, does He see in you a genuine childlike trust and the absolute dependence upon Him? That's going to be important as we walk through the first portion of chapter 18. Here, are you trying to live your life in your own ability, in your own strength, according to your own resources? Are you your own man or your own woman? Or can you honestly say, I'm living day by day absolutely dependent upon the Lord? That's what it means to walk the Christian walk of faith. Humility. I think about that old country song, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. 
I don't think that because my sweet wife will remind me that quick. I ain't perfect. But, and I'll tell you I'm not perfect. Uh, sometimes I tell people that they're looking for a perfect church, they need to keep on moving on down the road. <laughs> you won't find it here. And, and that's because churches don't have a perfect pastor. And to my knowledge, there are no, no perfect church members. Now, I, I know people think they are, but I, honestly, there are no perfect church members. But, but humility is the heart of Christianity, folks. It really is. If I take you, if you hold the place in Matthew 18, let me just show you the Apostle Paul, beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 5, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Just, just listen and drink in what Paul said about our Savior. Our Lord. Jesus is the model. He is the perfect reflection of humility, a demonstration of humility. Second, in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says to Christians, to the church, that this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, in a more modern translation, I think it would say, have this, the same attitude as Jesus Christ had. So, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and turning in the likeness of men. In the spiritual scheme of things, that's a major emotion. I mean, that's going from being the CEO of the corporation to being a green closet vanity. I mean, Jesus took the ultimate demotion to come into this world as God in the form of man. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. Verse 8. And then found in appearance as a man who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. There's another demotion. Not only did he come into the world as a human, but he even allowed himself to experience death. But that's not the end. It's like Jesus keeps speaking. Have you ever seen the movie, The King and I? Will uh, Brenner, this was an old one. I know the young people say, eh. Uh, but this is a classic. And, and this English woman was going to this uh, Siam. Because this Siam, she speaks the King's song. And so, she didn't know about the custom that nobody walked into the King's throne room and their heads dare be higher than the king. They have a way of lowering your head. So she goes in all prim and proper, and, and all of a sudden she notices everybody drops down. When the king stands, everybody's dropping down. And she's still standing, and one of the servants kind of hands down, you know. And the king sees that she doesn't really know the thing. And so finally it dawns on her, you know, one of the servants says, your head must not be above the king. So the king is going to have a little fun with her. He, he sees that she's, she's now, you know, bowed down. So he gets and bows down. That means he's got to kneel down. So he kneels down. That means he's got to lay down. I think he's having fun with this proper English lady. I, I, look what Jesus is doing. 
who stoops down to come down to earth, humbles himself as a man. Daniel's are just flabbergasted. Daniel's are just, I can't believe it. But the master is God, but God is God. And then he even subjects himself to death, but folks, it doesn't stop there. It says, even the death of a cross. A hideous, criminal death. How do you think Jesus went that far? I say, what? Death. He lowered himself as low as you could go. He shows you and me how much He loves us. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves, that is, redeem us from our sins, and to model humility. This is the only time that Jesus modeled humility, but you see what Paul is saying there. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'll get on back in our message, in chapter 5, verse 6, the apostle Peter talks about, the, and he also, writing to Christians, is, is challenging them. In this, this thing of being humble, in verse 5 of first Peter chapter 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, younger people, y'all listen up, listen up. You younger people, submit yourselves to your old pastor. Oh, well, that's my translation. Submit <laughs> yourselves to your elders. And that's a good thing, young people, it really is. You know what? I heard on WBSJ, they had a contest, it was a birthday contest. And a little boy, 10 years old, wanted. And he called in that morning. And, and, and the lady uh, on the radio was talking to him interview, and she was asking him questions. Everything he, she said, the little boy would say, yes ma'am. No ma'am. Very, very polite. And you know, after that, people come calling the radio station, and they would say, oh, that was like music to my ears. I now heard a young person say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, the calls were flooding in. The radio station was a buzz. That one little boy who had been taught, obviously, from early on, that it's a good thing for young people to address older citizens, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. Okay, well, anyway, I'm going to let the young people off the hook because all of us it says, it says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. I like the verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Are you here this morning with a burden? Are you here? And I know you are. Are you here this morning with a problem? Are you here this morning with a hardship? Can you see what Jesus said? You can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and put how much of you care? All of you care. There's no problem too big, too complicated that God can't take care of, my friend. You do just that. It's laid in the hands of God. You just cast it, throw it up on Him. And say, Lord, I don't know the solution, I don't know the outcome, but I love you, you love me, I trust you, and I humble myself to you. Oh, listen, the peace of God will go with you when you do that. So humility, a humble spirit, is the heart of Christianity. Now we'll go back to chapter 18. Let's take a look at this. How does this play out in Jesus' interaction with his disciples? Jesus is talking to us 
So he's talking to, he's talking to his disciples then, but he's talking to disciples in the 21st century, and he's talking to us about the attitude that we should have. And it must be an attitude of humility. First of all, the believer's attitude towards the Lord. And so we begin reading there in verse 18, of chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, in other words, immediately, within an hour, a scholar said, right after Peter did this taxpayer thing with the face, then the next day, it wasn't another, it, it was right after that. Right after that. This, at this time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest to the kingdom of heaven? There's no history to that. This is not the first time this discussion has broken out. You know, James and John's mom came to Jesus and said, you know, Lord, do me a favor. I want you to make sure my boy. You know, James and John, sons of thunder. I, I like the one of them to be on the right and one on the left. You know, when you get into the kingdom, I want my boys to be, you know, the, the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Commerce. Yeah, I want them right up there. You know what I mean? And so, so this thing for buying for power was a problem. I, I believe that Peter was in the spotlight. You know, Jesus has told him after his great profession of faith or confession, you know, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, oh, you know, Simon Barjona, no, you know, no man revealed that. Did. That came from heaven. And upon this rock, upon this foundational statement of faith, I'll build my church. So Peter's glowing there. He made a little misstep when he tried to correct Jesus, you know, when Jesus said he was going to go and die. Jesus said, oh, no, no, that's not going to happen. He already told you. He called him a Satan. But then right after that, he takes him up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He sees what the other disciples, other than James and John, didn't see. He saw the Lord glorified. He saw with his eyes Moses and Elijah. So, you know, and then when they get there, who does Jesus ask about the tax can issue? He calls Peter. Peter, what do you think? Okay. And then he says, Peter, to go get the money to take. So, if you're the other 11 disciples, Peter, 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 Peter. You know, I, I'm sure along the way, as they're walking around the road, they're probably saying, you know, the rich point in this Peter is just sounding like he's God gets to the world. And then, so I'm sure some of that discussion, and, and so in Mark's gospel, you'll probably reflect it in a parallel form in chapter 9, verse 33. You don't need to turn over there, but, but it's interesting. Jesus is reading their hearts. They're going down the road and they're having this argument and he's ahead of them. And so when they get to the point where they are, he just say, oh boys, uh, what was that y'all were arguing about? And they're embarrassed. They don't, want to, they don't want to say anything. And he even reads their heart in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. So, he, 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 listen, don't think the Lord is just watching what you say with your lips, ladies and gentlemen. The Lord knows your heart. But now, I think after he has kind of confronted them, now they say, oh, okay, well, Lord, this is it. Who just settled this for us? Who is the greatest when you establish the kingdom? Who's the number one? Who's the number two? Who's the number three? You know, just lay it, on, lay it out. We want to know where we stand. Well, what this reveals is the disciples in their prideful debate reveals their motives were selfish motives. You see, because they had derived their, their understanding of what the kingdom of God was going to be, not from what Jesus was teaching, but they were looking at the world. They were thinking how the Gentiles 
rank in order. They were thinking how the Jews, the Jewish leaders, were so obsessed with power and prestige and position. So naturally, their, set, their, their mindset is, is contaminated by the world. They were clamoring for prestige and power. And that's not what the kingdom of God is all about. Now listen, before we get too critical of the disciples, let's just be fair and remind ourselves that none of us are immune to that trap of wanting to try to be noticed and wanting to, you know, this prideful hierarchy that sometimes we try to do even in the church. Who's the most important? Who's got the most power? Who's got the, the most visible, prominent position? Who's, you know, I'll never forget several years ago, we had a Hispanic family that lived down in Merriweather Estates and three or Hispanic boys. I'm going to tell you, they're like my granddaddy said, they were hammers without a handle. They were all boys. I'll never forget, we'd be trying to have a fellowship meal and those three rascals would be up under the serving table wrestling. But anyway, that's how they were were cheap. But I'll never forget the oldest one of the boys, he was about 10 years old, his name was Victor. And he called me off to the side, and he came up to me, you know, and his serious was a heart attack. He came up to me and he says, uh, uh, Mr. Siders, says, uh, are you the boss? <laughs> I mean, who wanted to know? He wanted to know who was the alpha dog in this organization. I guess he was going to say, okay, I'm going to take him on. But, you know, so even, even in, in that child's thinking, you know, who's the most, who's got the most power around here? Who's calling the shots? And we have to be careful because sometimes, you know, we live in a sinful world that is so contaminated with selfish ambition and power and promise and position. We, we are so subject to that, to be, to define ourselves by our successes and our accomplishments. But hold on, horses, hold on, because Jesus is going to change the formula altogether. He's going to clock them out of his box. But they're waiting for Jesus to say, well, it's another fact. Two of you disciples will be my ambassadors, and three will be my delegates, and you know, you know what Jesus says, well, let's just take a look there. Look at those two. And Jesus called a little child to, to him. A little child would be a preacher. And probably somebody, you know, from three or five years old. Just a little child. Now, you'll notice that Jesus didn't go out into the congregation or audience. Obviously, they were in a house and so there were children around. He didn't go out and, and say, Come here. You. I mean, Jesus knew this little child. I believe he called that little child by their name. He said, You know, Elias or whatever. You go, Come here. Come here. And this child came to Jesus. You see, I think children sense from the Lord his deep compassion. His security, I believe, could see in his eyes that could trust this man. Anyway, the idea of the child came and he put the child on his lap, sat in the midst of them, and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you're talking about some old, codgy fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, scratching their heads and saying, just hold on. <laughs> Wait a minute. But <laughs> can you connect the dots? 
You know, got to understand, children in our society are campers. Kids have got rights galore, and I'm all for children's rights, but I'm going to tell you, children have got it made in the shade in uh, 21st century America. Especially compared to third, third uh, world countries. And in first century Palestine, let me help you to understand, the child was the least insignificant member of society. In fact, in the Roman culture, they almost looked upon his possessions. He was a pure child. If you, you, you like to have a baby, you said, well, I got enough for it. I mean, it was just your possessions. So, so here's, a, here's a, a little human being that had no, no right, no prominence, very insignificant. But the Lord says, I want you to look at the attitude of this child. I want you to look and see what this child represents. Our attitude before the Lord must be childlike dependence. This is what the Lord is looking for in his disciples. He's looking for those who are childlike. Let me clarify something, okay, for church people. He's not saying he wants you to be childish. There's too many of those in churches today. It amazes me. People who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, who claim to be mature in the faith, and they'll fly off the handle at the little game. Childish. Immature. So he's not saying be childish. He's saying we must be childlike. And Jesus uses this small child to symbolize that we must come to him absolutely, totally trusting in him. Our salvation requires humble repentance. That's what he says there. Look at verse 3. He says, I said to you, unless you are converted, the Greek, so that word means to turn around. 180 degrees. He says, you must, if you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, then you've got to stop in your tracks where you're headed towards pride and selfish ambition and selfish desires. And you've got to turn around and go in the opposite direction. Where is the opposite direction? Humility. Humility. Coming on the mouth in chapter five and verse three, when Jesus was talking about those characteristics of the kingdom, and He says, "Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. Come to a spiritual poverty. In spiritual poverty, you don't come to the Lord and say, oh, listen, God, I've kind of got it worked out. I'm a pretty religious person. I, I pray. I know how to read the scriptures. You know, I go to church. Uh, you know, uh, I think I'm qualified. Oh no, oh no. You come to the you come to the holy and righteous God in the universe with a sense of spiritual poverty. You say to God, Oh Lord, have mercy upon me. I am a lost, depraved sinner. There's nothing of value about me that should even cause you to want to turn your head towards me. I am bankrupt. That's what humility is. And then come with a genuine meekness. That's hard for 
contemporary Christians today, especially in the Western Hemisphere, the Western civilization, because we're so built up on, on pride and ego and being our own person and everything. This idea of, of yielding ourselves to somebody, and yet Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who humbles himself and does the will of my Father. Listen, coming to Christ and saying, Lord, I am absolutely dependent upon you. Without you, my life is nothing. I cannot do anything of eternal significance. Lord, I am coming to follow you. I will depend upon you. I will follow you wherever you go. I want to do whatever you want me to do. I am absolutely humbling myself to you. It's a hard thing for people that pretty much have it all and can do almost anything with the resources that we have. We, we, we need to move along because not only are we talking about the attitude that we have towards the Lord, but Jesus is also talking about the attitude that we should have towards fellow Christians. As we move through the verse 5. Let me clarify something. Yes, Jesus brought this small child before him, and Jesus uses the term little children, little child. But he's not talking about literal children. All the child is is a symbol. When he talks about children, he's talking about those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all God's children, aren't they? And if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. You are a part of the family of God. So, well, first of all, the believer's attitude for fellow Christians must be of humility. And, and let me just say this. Any good parent is going to favor those persons who do good for their children, who advance their children, and bring good to them. But these same parents will be strongly in opposition to anybody that threatens their child. Anybody that undermines the health and well-being of their child. You don't believe that you go camp with somebody's little child. You'll see the mother hens in the church, I'm going to tell you. And I mean, when it comes to their kids now, you know, especially their little babies. And I'm talking about the babies that are 10, 12, 16, 32. I mean, hey, you know, that's their kids. The Lord strongly identifies himself with his children. We are his children. We are not his disciples, but we are his children, and it means a lot to the Lord. And so, you know, it's important in, in John chapter 1, in verse 12, John says, anyone comes to me who receives the right to become, what? A child of God. And so, it, for those who accept the Lord, they, they receive the right, the privilege, the power to become a child of God. And now, look at First John, beginning in chapter 2, First John chapter 2. And just read through that brief book. Ten times John refers to Christians as children. Little children. Little children. That means absolutely dependent upon the Lord. And so, when we come to Christ, we, are, we need to understand that our Lord not only saves us, but He totally identifies with us. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, in verse 16. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. He's talking about followers of Christ. He says, He who hears you, talking about His followers, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. 
and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, what does all of that mean? Simply this. Jesus says, if you're my child, and you go out there in the world, whatever anybody does to you, I thought that parent is protected of their child. Jesus says, whatever anybody does to you, if they do good, they're doing it to me. They're doing good to me. If they do evil, they're doing it to me. Not only that, they're doing it to my father too. I want to keep that in mind. I want to bring it into the context of the church. So how is it then that we should treat fellow believers? When you hurt someone who is a fellow believer, when you betray someone who is a fellow believer, you gossip about them, you put them down, can I just remind you of a simple fact? You're messing with one of God's children. You're messing with one of his daughters, with one of his sons. You understand that when you do something good to a fellow believer, it's just like you're doing it to the Lord, Jesus said. And when you do something hurtful and mean to a fellow believer, listen, it's just as if you're making the Lord hurt. I think Christians lose sight of that. We take one another for granted. And we think, well, oh, well, they're fellow Christians, they're fellow church members. I can get away with doing, you know, just anything I want to. So listen, wherever you encounter another Christian, regardless of their race, regardless of their social status, regardless of their economic status, listen, when you, however you treat them, you are treating the Lord. You, you are treating one of His kids. And the Lord does not take that lightly. And not only in, in terms of how we treat, because the Bible tells us we are responsible to love one another. As, as the body of Christ, and beyond just the church, every Christian, we have a responsibility wherever we encounter Christians, we have a responsibility to love one another as Christ loves us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, John says over there, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, so must we love one another. I think this is a very appropriate message to have at the Lord's Supper. Because I believe it's a time for introspection, for us to look within our hearts and not only ask, what is my attitude towards the Lord, but what is my attitude towards other believers? And not only that, we have a responsibility in love, but we also have a responsibility in sin. Are you a stumbling block for a fellow Christian? How that, I mean, does your attitude or your actions or your lifestyle in any way tempt another person to fall in sin? You would do well to look at verse 6 with me. I'm going to read it. But whoever causes one of these little ones, and he's not talking about preschool children, he's talking about Christians. Whoever causes one of these Christians who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone would were hung around his neck and he would drown in the depths of the sea. That's not just a figurative expression Jesus came up with. 
In that time period, historians tell us that for some of the hideous criminals, Romans would take that criminal who'd been convicted out into the middle of a deep lake or deep river, tie his hands together, and tie a heavy, heavy stone to his neck. Throw the stone overboard first, and then they'd say, Don't lay on. Man overboard. Imagine the terror of being pulled into the depths and not being able to save yourself. It's an awful death. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Do you know Jesus takes it serious when a fellow Christian in any way causes a fellow Christian to stumble in sin? Have you been instrumental in possibly leading somebody to dabble in gambling? Maybe dabble in pornography? Or drinking? Or stealing? Or cheating? Lord. Please consider how you dress when you come to church and participate in church activities. Yes, we have been born again. Yes, the Lord has given us a new person. Let me say something. Hormones still run through the male body. I don't think there's a man in the church who could absolutely die. And, and so when you wear just as cut down to here, and him got to hear, let me tell you something. We're going to see it. And, and I don't think there are any men that are immune to being tempted visually. I really don't. I don't care how spiritual they are. I don't know any men in the church who are paralyzed from the nose down. So I, I, on behalf of your brothers, I appeal to you, please help us in this department. And I'll say to the rest of us, God, there are ways that you can get something blocked to ladies as well, your sisters. And don't you dare let Satan use you in any way to be a something block to cause that precious daughter of Christ to stumble in her relationship with the Lord. And hey, Jesus says, listen, if you want to do that, he says, it'd be better that you said, get out there in a burst for a millstone, a millstone weighs weigh hundreds of pounds, and you can toss over into the depths of the sea. Let me close by just very quickly, helping you to see our attitude towards ourselves. And, and, and really, in chapter 18, verse 8, the Lord says, And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life rain or main rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. You may recall that in, in uh, earlier in, in uh, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, Jesus used a very similar illustration except he used 
The right hand and the right eye. He says, if your right eye calls you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off. What he's basically saying in Jewish society, the right eye, the right hand, were the best. And And so what he's telling us here is Christians should not have a casual attitude to the presence of sin. Basically what the Lord is saying is it's still part of your life, not just your physical members. But if there's anything in your life as a believer that leads you towards sin, I, he said, I don't care how valuable that job is, or that hobby is, or that friendship, or that relationship, or the possessions, or your hobby, or whatever. He said, I don't care how valuable it is, if it in any way leads you away from the Lord, he says, throw it away. Don't casually dabble with it and say, oh, I'll get it under control and I'll manage it. Hey, and that's why it's so graphic in using the hyperboles of cutting off and clucking out and throwing away. So I urge you today, have the right attitude towards the Lord. Have the right attitude towards fellow believers. Have the right attitude towards yourself. This is what the Lord says is important. This is what the Lord said brings greatness in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak so boldly and clearly to your people. And Lord, we, we all are subject to the sin of pride and selfishness and conceit. We need your help, Lord. We pray that you would help us, Lord. Strengthen us. In our times of temptation, Lord, help us to be reminded that there's no temptation that, that comes to us that is not common among man, but God is faithful who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear, but in the temptation to provide a way of escape that we may be able to bear. God, help us to have a humble attitude toward you, just like little children who trust you, who depend upon you, not ourselves. Help us to have the right attitude towards brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they be members of this church, this denomination, whatever. Let us be humble and submissive one to another. And Lord, let us have the right attitude towards ourselves. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to you. We will purchase, dear Lord, at a great price. There on Calvary's cross. And now, Lord, as we protect the Lord's supper, I pray that your Holy Spirit give us a sense of humility. Help us as we're taking the bread to be reminded of your broken body, your tortured body that brought us to God the Father. Lord, help us as we partake of the cup that symbolizes your precious, sinless, atoning blood, that you shed your blood as a new covenant of grace that we might have access to a wonderful, eternal relationship with our Father in heaven. We owe it all to you. So, Lord, speak to our hearts. If there's anyone here today that has sin in their hearts and their lives, Lord, please help them to confess and repent of it before they take of the elements. And we just pray your blessings upon this, this ordinance. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask the deacons if they would, if it's time to come.
For the brothers of the Lord's Supper here at Cornerstone, this was open to all believers in Jesus Christ, regardless of where your church membership may be at this time. Uh, this is a ordinance of the body of Christ. And so if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you've made a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and followed in the believer's baptism, you're invited to protect the elements, and you've grown close to God in this time. Father, we pray that as we take uh, the elements this, this morning, that you would search our hearts, and show us anything that is out of keeping with your will, out of your character, understand, help us to be absolutely transparent and honest with you. We pray your blessings, Lord, upon this time. Draw us close to your heart, as we remember, as we remember. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.